0: Welcome to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and insider information on all of the newest releases that I have read and recommend. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. If you love to read, please consider joining my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month, one where I talk about the next month's most anticipated books and one where I chat with an independent bookseller, all about their store and the books that they recommend. In addition, I host a monthly early read where members have advanced access via NetGalley to a digital copy of a book, and then we meet on Zoom with the author pre-publication to chat about that book. January's book is The Sweet Spot by Amy Popel. And for February, there are two Lauren Willig's new book, Two Wars and a Wedding, and a debut by Lee Abramson called A Likely Story. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Tori Whitaker about a matter of happiness. Tori belongs to the Bourbon Women Association and the Historical Novel Society. Her work has appeared in the Historical Novels Review and Bookmarks Magazine. She graduated from Indiana University is an alum of the Yale Writers Workshop and has recently retired from a national law firm where she served as chief marketing officer. She spent a decade in Detroit because of her husband's career in the automotive industry. The two now reside near their children outside Atlanta and have been married for 45 happy years. I hope you enjoy our conversation.
1: Hi, I'm Emma.
0: And I'm Joe. And And we're we're the the Professional Professional Book Book Nerds. Nerds.
1: Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always,
2: happy happy reading. Reading.
0: Welcome, Tori. I am so glad you are here again on my podcast.
2: Thank you, Cindy. I'm, I'm really delighted to come. I love your podcast, and it's an honor to be back.
0: Well, I'm thrilled to pieces that we get to chat again. Me too. Why don't we start out with you talking a little bit about A Matter of Happiness for those that won't have read it yet.
2: Okay. It is a dual timeline novel that really follows two fiercely independent women that live almost a century apart. We've got Violet in the historical thread, who in the late 19-teens, early 1920s, she is a young woman who we follow her evolution into the roaring 20s flapper. Even at 18, she was very independent, wanted to earn her own money, wanted adventure and everything. And she was working as a clerical worker in a Kentucky distillery when prohibition hit and she lost her job and the community became very depressed. You know, the economy went bad and everything. So she took off on her own at the age of 19, for Detroit, which was the fastest growing city in the country at that time. And she's, she had always wanted to own her own automobile. Her father would not let her drive his Ford Model T. And that becomes a goal for her, that and being independent and on her own, as I say. Well, almost 100 years later, her great, great, great niece. Melanie in 2018 is going to, well, she inherits this car and the car that Violet bought. And it's called a Jordan MX Playboy. And it was, it's a cherished heirloom now. And when Melanie receives it, she doesn't know that it hides secrets from Violet's past that no one in the family really knew of things that went on when she was in Detroit, when her aunt was in Detroit. So so we see these dual timelines. We've got some parallel stories. Melanie is herself a rising star at a contemporary bourbon distillery. And so the story sort of juxtaposes the prohibition with today's bourbon enthusiasm and craft cocktail culture. But Melanie has also recently split up with her fiance, and she's bucking for a promotion at work, and there is a rival. So she's got some stuff going on in her life, and ultimately we will find that she discovers this journal that Violet has left for her, and it will leave her with lessons in life that changes her perspective on some things.
0: Well, how did you decide to write this story? What inspired you? Where did you come up with the ideas?
2: Well, there were a lot of inspirations, but the very first nugget of inspiration was some years ago, and it began with the car. My husband has always been in the automotive industry. In fact, we spent 10 years in Detroit. I worked in Detroit as well, and he was in the automotive industry. And in his semi retirement, he does customizations of antique automobiles, say like a 1934 Ford and, and cars like that. And it, it just struck me that how cool it would be to have an old vintage automobile stored somewhere where somebody finds something. And that was really where this story was born. Another big inspiration for me was, I, I, you know, I did some research that what car am I going to use for the story? I knew there was going to be a car. And I wanted to focus on the early 1920s, so I did some research, and I discovered this Jordan, which in its era was just wild with flappers. They just flocked to it. In fact, F. Scott Fitzgerald named a character Jordan in The Great Gatsby and named her after this car. And there was a big advertising campaign in 1923, and... It revolutionized automotive advertising, but it was really targeted to women. And it didn't talk about how many cylinders the car had. It talked about the emotions the car had. And the car symbolizes, in its period and in my book, the car symbolizes freedom and independence. And I just knew when I discovered this car, it was going to be the one. So that was an inspiration. Then, also about, I guess, 10 years ago, my husband and I, traveled along the bourbon trail in Kentucky and his his parents and grandparents were born and raised in Kentucky. My grandmother was born there as well and we have a little bit of an affection for it in that way. But also, we enjoy bourbon. I guess that was how I came to have the idea to put these two periods opposite of each other. You know, my first novel was dual timeline and I love that structure. So it worked out pretty well, I think.
0: It definitely did. And I know from your Facebook page that you like bourbon because I see you posting photos of you and your husband drinking various bourbons. So that's fun that you were able to wrap that into this story.
2: Yes. In fact, during COVID, we, well, before COVID, we used to go out every Friday night, sort of like TGIF date night. And when COVID hit, we had to stop doing that. And it was really during that time, starting in 2020, that we became even more connoisseurs, I guess I'd say, with my husband mixing cocktails for us every Friday at home. We still had our Friday night date night, but it was just in our own living room. And he became quite the mixologist.
0: Okay, that's so fun. Mm -hmm.
2: We're still doing it. We still have Friday night date nights at home. We've enjoyed it so much. We don't even go out on Friday nights anymore.
0: Makes it a little easier. Yeah. Well, and I hate to even mention this because I know you're going to ask me what kind of car it is, and I have absolutely no idea. But my neighbor next door actually has two vintage cars, not that old, but I think they're from the 40s. And he takes my son to ride in one of them occasionally, and I think recently he just sold one of them. But the other runs well, and he takes it out, and it's loud. It kind of revs the motor. It's really fun. And so I'm going to have to go over there and ask him what kind of car it is now.
2: Oh, yes. Well, the, the Jordan was in addition to just being this really cool sports car of its day, it was a two-seater convertible. So it was a roadster. And if you can imagine, even today, the manufacturer had called it scarlet red. Well, even today, if you saw two attractive young women who are 22 years old riding around the city in a hot red convertible, it turns heads. And it certainly turned heads then. It was it was kind of scandalous with a lot of people who didn't think women should be driving. And that was also during the time that half of the cars on the road were Fords and they could have it in any color they wanted as long as it was black. And That's what Henry Ford was supposed to have said. Oh, that's funny. It, it stood out as a uh, as a hot machine. Well, and you
0: see I wait a little bit to ask about covers, but because we're talking about this and there is a car on your cover, and I love your cover. Red's my favorite color. So I love, love, love your cover and all the detail. Is that the type of car that is on your cover?
2: Well, I'm so glad you asked that. That is the exact car. The publisher brought me four cover designs at the initial review, and they basically my editor told me from the get-go, and usually they let you just look at them and kind of pick your favorite. But, but she said just from the get-go and I want, I'm going to tell you right now, everybody here loves the one with the car most. And then I sent it to my critique group and, and then the four of them. And they were like, Oh, you got to use the one with the car. So I liked it too, but I said, okay, I went back to Lake union. Who's my publisher and said, But if we're going to have a car on the cover, it's got to be the car. It's got to be the Jordan. And then it took some time, but I was able to get rights to the photographs of this car. And so this car on the cover is truly a restored, authentic 1923 Jordan MX Playboy. And that was important to me. I liked the way they have this red background, but then they have this flapper in the black and white. I thought that was cool.
0: Very. And I like the border as well, that's very art deco looking from the time period. You got it. It's beautiful. Well what do you hope your readers take away from this book?
2: I hope they take away that though candy bars may rain from the sky, life will not always be sweet. That is a quote that Violet writes in her journal and and there was this one scene, it was one of my favorite scenes in the book to write. Where Barnstormer, a Barnstormer with a, a flyboy in the open cockpit goes flying through the streets of Detroit down low. This happened all over the Eastern Seaboard. This, I mean, yeah, Eastern Seaboard. This really happened. And they would drop Baby Ruth candy bars from the airplane and people would go scrambling for them. And it, it's kind of a theme in the book that life will not always be sweet, but go on adventures and Find out what you want and what your you know, understand what your values are and seek happiness and and love. And I think I want them to to take away as readers that women can be independent, women can go after what they want and define what happiness is for them. But it's not always gonna be an easy road, no pun intended. (laughs) Exactly. I like that. Thank you.
0: Was one timeline easier to write than the
2: other? oh gosh, you know, I haven't thought of it that way. I think they were both equally difficult. <laughs> and, and and there were changes made in both timelines as we went through various evolutions of giraffes. But for example, in the historical timeline, I originally had in the opening chapter, Violet's mother passing away. But it just seemed when we got done that, that wasn't working. And I decided to keep her alive. And I really feel like her mother plays an important role in the story. But that was hard because, I mean, when you have a character who used to be dead and now is alive, that really changes what's going on in your main character's head and heart. And so that was a big revision all the way through. And then in the modern timeline, you know, I I really had a a relationship with my mother that was not contentious. And yet in fiction, we want to see some friction. And so I had to keep making their relationship with Melanie and her mother more stressed, let's say. And ultimately they have sort of a blowout and we want to see them resolve it if they can. But that's hard for me to write because it's, it's something i never experienced and then it was a ambitious dual timeline given that there was one setting in kentucky well the historical part is partly in kentucky as well but mostly um in detroit so there's two cities two industries bourbon and automotive so there were it was uh, a lot i wouldn't say one was easier than the other
0: I'm always so curious and I know authors do it in many different ways, but do you write straight through or do you write an entire timeline, the other timeline and then weave them together?
2: I agree with you. I find it's fascinating to hear how other authors do that. For me, it's kind of, sort of a hybrid. I will write 3 or 4 chapters in the modern timeline and then 3 or 4 chapters in the historical timeline. I like to stick with one timeline sort of while I'm in the zone, typically there'll be a good place to either stop or to transition back to the other timeline. But I do that all the way through the book, a few here, a few there, all the way through the book with one exception, I guess. And I found this with my first novel too, that about halfway through, even though I know how the story is going to end generally, because I'm a planner and I've got an outline. About halfway through, I just have to cut to the end and write that last chapter and epilogue. But aside from that, it's pretty much straight through going back and forth, as opposed to write the whole historical timeline and then write the whole modern timeline and weave them together, as some people do.
0: I know. And I think that would be so difficult to sit down and write one entire timeline, then the other entire timeline, and then try to weave them together. But it seems to work very well for some people, and some people do. The complete opposite, they just write straight through. And then it sounds like you have kind of a hybrid. And that's fascinating that midway through, you end up writing the ending. Right.
2: Now, after I get where I think the book is pretty set, then I will read one timeline all by itself and edit one timeline all by itself. And I'll do that in both. But the, the drafting and the, um, the early drafts are are back and forth.
0: That's really interesting. How do you decide on your characters' names? I'm always fascinated by how authors choose particular names.
2: Oh, well, that's a fun question. With Violet, I really did some research. Uh, she would have been born in the early 1900s, and so I did girl-baby names of that period. And I liked Violet with the I and the L in it. And then Bond. Her last name is Bond. and she's a partially German descent and English descent. And and I looked up English names, of last names, and I came with Bond. And I really like how ultimately she and her great, great, great niece have this bond that even while Violet is still alive and she's a hundred years old, she's got this bond with her niece. And also it was during this era in the historical part, early 1920s with stocks and bonds and investing. And and as we know that the crash comes in 1929, but my story doesn't go that far into the twenties, but she's buying bonds. And I I, kind of liked it with Melanie. I liked the sound of the name, but there are a couple other side characters that had names that were special to me. My, my granddaughter who was 12 at the time said, grandma, will you write a book someday with a character that has my name? Oh, and it was just so sweet. And so Violet's sister is named Evelyn. And then Leela is this wild flapper who is Violet's best friend in Detroit. And I, I picked the name Leela, which was a name from that period, but you'll be surprised to know that that's my middle name. It's actually spelled differently than how I put it in the book, L E L A in the book. And my name is L E H L I A, but it was named after my, I was named after my great grandmother who they all called Leela. So um, I liked having that name in there too. That's so
0: fun to carry in some family names into your story.
2: hmm. Oh, well, another little side note you might enjoy is you know how Melanie always called Violet Grape Aunt Violet? Yes. Well, uh, one of my other great grandmothers when I was two or three years old, my mother kept saying great grandma, great grandma, but it would come out great grandma when I was saying it. (laughs) So um, I I remember that fondly. And so I, I threw that in the book too. I love
0: that. That always makes me think about when I gave birth to my daughter, she was the first grandchild on my parents' side. And so my mom, like for months, thought about what she wanted to be called. And she Went through all these different names and she's like, okay, she settles on Gran. She's like, I like Gran. That's mm-hmm. what I want to be called. So my daughter is born really early, and she ended up like in the hospital for a while. And then she yeah. had all these speech issues. So she's totally fine. But she had all these speech issues and she couldn't say the grass sound. I mean, for a very long time. And so my mom would say Gran and point at herself. And my daughter would say Mimi and point oh. at my mom. <laughs> and so eventually she got renamed Mimi. Because Caroline's like, yeah, sorry, can't say grand. And so it ended up being Mimi. And then eventually granddad. At the time, she would just kind of be like, da-da. But eventually, you know, she could get the gra and it became granddad. But it was pretty funny because my mom had put so much effort into it. And then it was not meant to be.
2: I love that story. It often is the firstborn grandchild that ends up naming the grandparents i found.
0: So the grape made me think of that when I was reading your book, because I was like, it's just so cute, the things that they'll do. And they're very determined. And they're like, this is what it's going to be. But I love that. Well, how is writing this book different than writing your first book? And then obviously, the launching is going to be different because your first book came out in the heart of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And now we're still working through issues, but people are doing tours and everything. So how, how is that different for you?
2: The main difference is with my first book, there was one main character in both timelines. We saw Millicent in Millicent Glenn's Last Wish. We saw Millicent in her 90s in the modern timeline. And we saw her as a young woman in post-World War II, early 1950s as a young woman. And so this novel is also more challenging in that I had two separate main characters in the timelines. As for launching the book, yes, I am going on book tour for the first time instead of doing strictly virtual programs. And it's not a huge tour, but I'm gonna go to five states and have several here in Georgia as well. And I'm looking forward to it. My husband's gonna be my chauffeur and we're gonna have fun. I bet you're excited
0: because that had to be a little bittersweet with the first book. Getting it out there and being so thrilled to have your first book, but then also have the pandemic messing with in person events. So I'm thrilled for you that you'll get to go out, meet readers, go to all these bookstores. That's so exciting.
2: That's right. When I got my book deal in like, I think it was early 2019, a dear friend of mine gave me an engraved case, uh, an embossed case actually, and then an engraved pen inside of it. And she said, This is for you to use on your first book tour to sign books. And it was just so touching and thoughtful and sweet. And then a year and a half later, I I didn't get to go on book tours. So I'm actually going to be using that pen for the first time this coming week. What a sweet gift. Isn't that?
0: Yes, very, very thoughtful and something you'll treasure always. For sure. Well, what surprised you the most when writing A Matter of Happiness?
2: Well, in... The Detroit setting, as I said, I I lived outside of Detroit for 10 years and worked. I actually worked right downtown on the main drag where the GM world headquarters was and everything. And yet there was so much about Detroit that I didn't know. I, I didn't know until I got into my research what a role it played in prohibition. And how that came about was Michigan actually had prohibited the selling of alcohol before national prohibition went into effect. By two years, I think it was. And so bootleggers and rum runners already had, they had their gig down pat. They were ahead of the game when the national prohibition hit. And also Detroit is just across the river from Canada. And the Detroit River is a very narrow river with a few little islands in it. And Canada at that time could still produce alcohol. And so the Rum runners would go across this river at night, take boatloads, literally, back across. And Detroit became a hub of the underground criminal distribution of bootlegged booze throughout the United States. Uh, At the same time, what that did was create in this boom town of Detroit, a lot of speakeasies and blind pigs and parties and jazz clubs and everything. And so it was quite the place to be during Prohibition. Let me add that my characters are not involved in being bootleggers or anything, but it does serve as a very interesting backdrop to be there in Detroit at that time.
0: I would certainly think so. And I'm sure it was interesting to look at Detroit in that time period compared to the time that you lived there.
2: That's true. Or compared to how it is now. Right. Another theme of the book is, well, let me just spell it out this way. The modern day character, Melanie, takes this old faded car that's been sitting in this carriage house for almost a hundred years and decides she's going to restore it. And, and I like to think that as her car and her beloved aunt's car becomes restored, Melanie becomes restored too. As I say, she's got this, this rivalry going on in, in her workplace. She's lost her love. But I like to think she becomes restored also. And while I don't spell this out in the book, I think it's a, it's a book club kind of discussion question is, um when we see what happened with the bourbon industry where it was just devastated. I mean, there were 200 distilleries of bourbon in Kentucky when prohibition hit and 6 of them got to have licenses to sell medicinal alcohol and that was all.
0: Yeah, I did not know that that it went from 200 to 6. I knew that some of them did have license to sell and sold for pharmacies and things like that, but I didn't realize the number was so small.
2: Right. And so In the last 10 years, though, there's been 2,000 bourbon distilleries open up. I mean, bourbon is hot, and there are distilleries in all 50 states. And so it's back. And so I like to think that maybe there can be a renaissance in in Detroit, too. And there there are groups and lots of community groups and everything trying to make that happen up there.
0: With the car industry being completely revolutionized in the last three, four, five decades, and some people buying foreign cars now while others continue to buy domestic and some foreign cars are actually made here it seems like detroit has really suffered
2: yes it has and i think they're seeing the growth of some new industries there and it you know michigan is really a beautiful state especially in the summer i'm hopeful that it will turn around because i think that's what the world does it's got some problems but hopefully some good people are gonna make it happen
0: I hope so it's always nice when those cities can kind of be turned around and and have a second life for them exactly well before we wrap up I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked
2: Oh okay well one book that I absolutely loved was Woman on Fire by Lisa Barr and I had not read her previous books but I picked this up because I love Novels that surround artwork. It's technically a thriller, but for me, being someone who really loves historical fiction, I thought there was enough history in this book that was fascinating. I, in fact, I would say that there were flashbacks of a character or two that went back to the Nazi era where they were stealing the masterpiece artwork that belonged to to Jewish people. And they were so heartbreaking. They were among the best flashbacks I've ever read and um, heartbreaking. And uh, this story was, it had everything. It had love and uh, rivals and a, a ruthless villain, a strong young woman trying to do right and all kinds of things like that, that I love. And then another book that, uh, was one that I found to really um, hit me emotionally. A tearjerker, actually, was by Dolan Perkins Valdez, Take My Hand, set in Alabama in, like, I think it was the 70s. And there are some things that happen to to girls and young women in that book that is based on real historic fact that just... are. Gut wrenching, Cindy, and and I fell in love with Dolan's work when she wrote *Wench*, and it, 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 she's just such a beautiful writer. You can be reading some horrifying things, but her her words are so magnificent that it it makes it just a joy to read. If that makes sense,
0: it does. I loved that book as well. Take my hand, and I need to go back and read *Wench* because people rave about it. But I agree on Take My Hand. It's one of those things that if somebody just told me in a vacuum that something like that had happened, the things that happened in that story, and I don't want to spoil anything, I would be like, there's no way. But obviously they did. And I, I knew the a little bit about the history. But it's just horrifying.
2: Well, and it was all supported by the government. It's just, wow.
0: Yes, I agree. Kind of crazy. But same with some of the stuff in Woman on Fire, too. You're like,
2: what is wrong with people?
0: But that is a great story. And I felt it was very fast paced and it was a fun thriller.
2: Yes. You know, it's going to be a movie with. um,
0: Sharon Stone.
2: Yes. Producing and starring in it.
0: Yeah, I cannot wait. I think that will be really fun.
2: I'm hoping she plays the villain, aren't you?
0: I think she must, because I think that would be the the age that she's at, you know, in terms of who she's going to play. so Oh, it's
2: going to be so good.
0: Yeah, but that's such a great story, you know, where she sent the book to Sharon Stone and Sharon Stone's like, I really like this book. I'd like to option it. So I thought that was very cool.
2: Oh, what a great success story. Yeah, exactly.
0: So, well, Tori, as always, I love, love, love chatting with you. And I can't wait to see your book tour as you progress. And I hope you have so much fun. And thank you for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast.
2: Well, thank you. It's always a pleasure, and I enjoy following you on all of your social media as well. Thank you. Thanks again.
1: Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor, so while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries, and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.
0: Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at thoughtsfromapage Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time.